How do you do? This summer, Universal Studios is going back to their roots once again with a new version of The Mummy. Following Marvel and DC's example, this new film is to be the first in a cinematic universe with the studio's beloved monsters. However, unlike the comic book companies, Universal had already created a cinematic universe with these characters way back in the 30s and 40s. About a dozen films were made connected by characters and events, albeit sometimes loosely. I'm Andrew from Dead Letter Movies, and I'd like to take you through the first cinematic universe starring Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and the Wolfman. I feel it would be a little unkind to present this without just a word of friendly warning. There will be some spoilers, so if you haven't seen any of these, well, I warned you. I bid you welcome. I am Dracula. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Based off the novel and a stage version, Todd Browning's Dracula is basically the Iron Man of the Universal Monsters cinematic universe, being first in all. The story goes that Carl Emley Jr. wanted to make a Dracula picture, having grown up on the Universal lot seeing Lon Chaney in Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. Despite the successes of the Cheney vehicles, Carl Sr., the studio's big boss, wasn't a huge fan of horror, so it took some convincing. Finally, in 1931, the studio would release their first version of Bram Stoker's tale. Originally, Carl Jr. and director Todd Browning wanted Browning's frequent collaborator Lon Chaney in the title role, but Chaney died before that could happen. That would have been interesting to see, but it's hard to imagine Dracula without Bela Lugosi. His performance laid the foundation for all portrayals of the role and cultural iconography. When you think of Dracula, he probably looks and sounds like Lugosi. Bela had made a name for himself in the stage version of Dracula, so it makes sense that the role eventually went to him. Audiences basically know the plot by now. Renfield travels to Transylvania to discuss real estate with Dracula. Dracula gets him under his power and drives Renfield mad. Dracula comes out to England, killing everyone on his travel boat, and then he bites and seduces a couple of ladies. Eventually, he is staked by Van Helsing. This isn't 100% like the book, but it works. My only issue with this flick is that Browning's version seems stagey and only shines in extended silent moments, such as the sequence with Dracula's first appearance. There's a moment when everyone is talking about seeing a wolf roaming outside and we never see that wolf. This is kind of confusing because Browning was a very visionary director. I suppose it doesn't help that the concurrently produced Spanish version excels in its craft over Browning's. Perhaps Todd hadn't quite figured out how to work with sound yet. The Unknown and Freaks are better films of his. Though a classic and essential viewing, Dracula has a lot that could be improved on. Still, Lugosi makes it a creepy and fun ride. A great start to a cinematic universe. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! In the name of God! Now I know what it feels like to be God! Just like in the Marvel Universe some years later, Universal's second entry involves a large green guy. The success of Dracula prompted Universal to go straight into Frankenstein. Henry Frankenstein is obsessed with creating life, and one night during an epic storm, he achieves it. Thing is, Fritz, Henry's hunchbacked assistant, gets the wrong brain, and Henry's new creation mostly just causes havoc. 
Eventually, father and son battled it out in a flaming windmill. Lugosi reportedly wasn't into the grunting and heavy makeup, so he passed on the role of the monster. Boris Karloff would become a household name because of his sympathetic portrayal of Henry Frankenstein's creation. Uncanny, they would call him. By the way, for the love of all things scary, please remember that Frankenstein is the doctor, not the monster. James Whale directed and helped design the archetypal look of the monster. Though also based on a theater adaptation of Shelley's novel, Whale somehow keeps a cinematic feel. The sequences with the monster's first appearance and the windmill climax are masterful. It isn't really like Shelley's novel at all, but it doesn't matter. A great and menacing film. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> Four years later, in 1935, the Frankenstein monster is the first to get a sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein. In my opinion, it is the best universal horror film. It is just about perfect. The monster has survived the burning of the windmill and is stalking about the countryside. He learns to speak by a blind old man and might get to live a normal life, but that soon goes up in smoke. The monster then meets an old teacher of Henry's, a Dr. Pretorius, who wanted to work with Henry earlier in the film, creating more life. Henry refuses, but changes his mind when Pretorius returns with the monster in tow. He and Pretorius will create a mate for the monster. Turns out the monster is not quite her type and everything comes crashing down. Returning director James Whale adds a great amount of humor as well as pathos. Karloff gives his best performance as the monster, even though he reportedly didn't approve of the monster speaking. But he really knocks it out of the park here. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. Friend. Good. <laughs> <laughs> The film has a nice prologue with Mary Shelley telling her tale. This section references how Frankenstein was born during a holiday trip with Percy Shelley and Lord Byron. Mary's played by Elsa Lancaster, who also plays the title role. Though now that I think about it, there are two Brides of Frankenstein in this film. The monster's mate, played by Elsa Lancaster, and Henry's wife, played by Valerie Hobson. Hmm. Dr. Pretorius, the film's antagonist, is one of the best mad scientists ever. Ernest Thesiger's campy performance actually elevates the film, unlike most roles of that sort. This is probably my favorite horror film, so I could talk about it for hours. James Whale put his mark on every scene with weird little in-jokes and great photography. It is a truly superb film. If you only see one of these movies that I'm going to talk about, this is the one to see. Do you like jewels, Lily? This is very old and very beautiful. Please don't come any closer. I... The next year, in 1936, the success of Bride of Frankenstein would influence Dracula's daughter quite a lot. It has the same kind of feel and pacing. It also has a bit more humor. The film picks up right where Dracula ends and Van Helsing finds himself arrested for Dracula's murder. Dracula's daughter, Countess Maria Zaleska, comes and takes Dracula's body to burn it, hoping that this will end the vampire's curse. It doesn't. So the Countess sets about her own reign of terror. There are some interesting LGBT undertones, and a female vampire subverts certain vampire tropes. The hero is Dr. Garth, a former protege of Van Helsing, though he isn't the one who stops the Countess ultimately. I am particularly fond of Zaleska's manservant, Sander, who says he's hilarious goth one-liners. Sander, look at me. What do you see in my eyes? Death. <laughs> the guy's a stitch. It's not quite as good as Bride Frankenstein, but this is the only Dracula movie that at least attempts to acknowledge a previous film. 
This would mark the end of Universal's horror cycle and phase one of its universe. Money Trouble would push the Lemley family out, and it would be three more years until we got a new monster movie. In 1939, Universal hadn't been doing so hot at the box office, so it was decided that perhaps it was time to revisit some old properties. Yep, reboots and such were rampant back then, too. A new Frankenstein flick seemed like a good idea, and so we get Son of Frankenstein. I, as a man, should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Basil Rathbone plays the titular young Frankenstein Baron Wolf, who returns to the family castle. The town folk all remember Daddy Frankenstein and assume Wolf is just as bad, so the young Baron wants to restore his family's good name. But then he meets Igor, who shows him a dormant monster, and suddenly the son wants to follow in his father's footsteps. I guess he and the monster are brothers, sort of. Once revived, the monster unleashes his mayhem as per usual under the direction of Igor. Eventually, the monster gets kicked into a sulfur pit and Igor gets shot. This injury has the longest running time of all the films, so it gets to breathe a little, but it could maybe move a little faster. Bela Lugosi gives his best performance since Dracula as Igor. Though Mel Brooks used elements from the first two Frankenstein films, including the original lab equipment, Brooks used Son of Frankenstein's structure for his young Frankenstein in 1974. I suggest a double feature. Son of Frankenstein was quite the hit, and soon a new phase of fright flicks would pour out of Universal. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, quit handing me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. In 1941, we get a new monster, the Wolfman Larry Talbot. And though Universal had made a werewolf film in 1935, this is the one that stuck with audiences. I bet you can even say the legend along with me. Even a man who is pure at heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. You may not have even seen this film and you know that rhyme. This is said three times in its entirety in the film. It sounds like legitimate folklore, but it was just made up by screenwriter Kurt C. Odmack. Lon Chaney Jr., son of the man of a thousand faces, plays Larry Talbot, an estranged son returning to his ancestral home to meet with his father, played by the ever-awesome Claude Rains. Who reigns? Claude Rains. There's a town shindig going on featuring a fortune teller who is played by Bela Lugosi. After partaking in the shindig, Larry gets bitten by a wolf whilst walking through the moors. Larry beats the wolf to death with a silver-handled walking stick. Turns out, that wolf was actually a werewolf, and no less, the werewolf was Bela the fortune teller. Bela's mother, played by Maria Uspinskaya, informs Larry of his cursed state and the rules of werewolfism. A werewolf can be killed only with a silver bullet, or a silver knife, or a stick with a silver handle. Larry prowls the countryside in his lupine state a few times before he convinces Claude Rains what's happening, and just like Bela, Larry gets beat with a silver-handled cane. Despite being the quintessential werewolf film, we never actually see a shot of the full moon, which is kind of weird. Chaney and Rains are pretty fun to watch, and there is a great amount of atmosphere. I'm also a fan of the score. I 
have replaced an evil brain with a good one. I have made amends for the great tragedy that my father and my brother unintentionally brought to this community. I have restored the good name of Frankenstein. A year later, we get a new Frankenstein flick, this time starring Cheney as the monster. Bay Lugosi returns as Igor, who apparently survived getting shot in Son of Frankenstein. Remember, there wasn't home video or even television back then, so they could be fast and loose with the whole continuity thing. To be honest, we should be glad they even attempt sometimes. Anyway, the monster gets revived to full power whilst walking about in a storm. Yes, he gets struck by lightning. Your father was Frankenstein, that your mother was the lightning. Having not the greatest relationship with the previous son of Frankenstein, Igor goes in search of a second son, Ludwig. Ludwig is a brilliant brain surgeon, and Igor thinks he can help out the monster. Ludwig isn't going to screw up like the rest of his family, though, and refuses at first. But then the monster lets loose and causes the usual havoc, so Ludwig reconsiders, sedates the monster with gas, and plans to deconstruct him piece by piece. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard. The guy is just stitched together, right? Then the titular ghost of Frankenstein appears and guilt trips his son into giving the monster a new brain. Igor fixes it to have his brain swapped into the monster, and after the surgery, an Igor-voiced monster arises. I cannot die! I cannot be destroyed! I, Igor, will live forever! However, the blood types don't match and the monster goes blind, which gets him all mad and he destroys the place. The end. I assure you it's incredibly entertaining, it's just so bonkers, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't make sense. After this entry, we finally get Convergence. That's right, more than one monster in a film. It all starts when Frankenstein's monster meets the Wolfman. But he doesn't understand. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Legend has it that screenwriter Kurt Siodmak made a joke to Wolfman director George Wagner one day in the Universal Commissary. Why don't we make a picture Frankenstein Wolf's the Meat Man, uh, meets the Wolfman? And Wagner just took him seriously. This may or may not be 100% true, but the first film to bind the cinematic universe is quite the hoot. Frankenstein Wolf's the Meat Man, <laughs> Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, starts with two grave robbers breaking into the Talbot family crypt. They accidentally let the full moon shine on Larry, and he is resurrected. After this, Larry's main motivation in life will be to finally die. I only want to die. He even goes back to Maria Uspinskaya, who's got nothing to help Larry, but has heard of this Frankenstein guy, and maybe he'd be helpful. Larry checks out the ruins of Frankenstein's castle and finds a frozen monster. It would have been difficult to have Cheney play both Larry and the monster, so Lugosi plays the monster now, which isn't a big leap since Igor's brain was put into the monster at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein. Now, supposedly the monster was supposed to have speaking lines again, but... The studio deemed all the monster's dialogue with Bela's accent ridiculous and cut them out. Poor Bela. This leaves a disjointed and somewhat bizarre story. There's a semblance of plot here, but it, it doesn't actually matter. It's a fun flick, and that's all it really should be. Sadly, we don't really get to see Werewolf Larry fight the monster for very long as a dam breaks and sweeps away the castle they're in. Though I guess the title just says they meet. The monster and regular Larry spend a good chunk of time just sort of hanging out, so basically the film accomplishes what it sets out to do. The vampire can assume very many different forms at will. Sometimes it appears as a bat, sometimes as a werewolf, and sometimes as a small cloud of swirling vapor. Before Dracula can join the party with Larry and the monster, he gets one more film to himself. Or is it really him, or is it the son of Dracula? 
Released a few months after Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in 1943, Son of Dracula becomes the last solo Drac flick, with Lon Chaney as the vampire. People like to debate whether or not he's the son of Dracula or just Dracula himself. I think the title is just playing off of Son of Frankenstein and Dracula's Daughter, as it gets established pretty firmly that he's actually Dracula. What happens is Catherine, a plantation heiress from the Deep South, comes back from a trip to Hungary acting all weird and macabre. She invites Count Alucard, Lon Chaney, whom she had met during her trip out to her home. Catherine and the Count get a little hot and heavy, and her jilted fiancé Frank shoots Alucard in jealousy. The bullet passes right through Alucard and seemingly kills the heiress instead. It looks like Frank is going to be on the hook for her death, but she's found walking around again later. A doctor friend of Frank's and a Hungarian professor reverse spell Alucard and realize who the Count really is. Get it now? Alucard? For a guy who can't use mirrors, it's kind of a funny gag. Eventually it gets revealed that Catherine only got with Dracula to be immortal. Frank isn't going to have any of this, so he goes off and destroys Dracula's coffin. Dracula gets caught in the sunlight and is no more. Frank then finds Catherine in her own coffin and burns it up. The end. Director Robert Siodmak, Kurt's brother, would go on to make some classic film noir flicks such as The Killers and Crisscross. And you can tell he's a great director with Son of Dracula. The film looks like an A picture despite its B-movie plot. Lon Chaney is a pretty good Dracula, if not quite as arresting as Lugosi. After this, it just made sense to invite Dracula to play with the Wolfman and the monster. Which brings us to House of Frankenstein in 1944. Okay guys, as we get into the next few entries, it might get a little confusing, so bear with me. Kill my trusted old assistant? Why no. I'm going to repay you for betraying me. I'm going to give that brain of yours a new home in the skull of the Frankenstein monster. The success of two monsters prompted Universal to throw five into one film. The monster and the wolfman return, but now we add Dracula, a mad scientist, and a hunchback into the mix. Quite the monster mash, huh? Seriously, this flick has everything except all the monsters on screen at once. Boris Karloff returns to play the mad scientist, and really he is the most monstrous one here. The film begins with Karloff in prison and discussing brain-swapping surgery with the hunchback character Daniel. They quickly escape prison and murder a traveling showman. They assume his act to cover their tracks. The big feature of the act is Dracula's skeleton, a stake still nestled in his chest. The time Dracula got burnt up and the time he got hit by the sun apparently don't count here. Karloff somewhat apathetically removes the stake and Dracula returns. The Count is played by John Carradine, who looks pretty good and plays the Count just fine, but he just isn't around very long for him to make much of an impression. The Count finds himself soaking in the rays by the time the first act ends. After that, Karloff and Daniel find themselves at the ruins of the castle flooded at the end of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. They find the frozen bodies of Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman. Hey, continuity! They get thawed out. The usual shenanigans, of course, ensue. Larry still wants to die and asks Karloff to help him out. Karloff comes up with this convoluted brain swap procedure that of course doesn't pan out. Larry gets shot with a silver bullet by his love interest and villagers storm the castle just as the monster is picking up speed. Eventually Karloff and the monster sink in quicksand and the flick ends. This is Karloff's last Frankenstein film for Universal, so the ending is kinda poignant. Glenn Strange makes a pretty good Frankenstein monster even if he has little to do in this flick. The Monster Mash is quite a good time and very entertaining, but there are a few missed opportunities, especially with Dracula killed so early in the film. I also find it odd that the mummy isn't in this either. 
There had been three mummy films from Universal by then and two more soon after, but it didn't occur to them to bring him along too. Well, at least our 2017 mummy gets to start the party this time. The heart that Frankenstein gave him never died. The spark of life is still there, waiting to be revived. Dr. Edelman, this thing destroyed Frankenstein. It's brought death to all who have tried to follow in his footsteps. Is that poor creature responsible for what he is? It's a thing of violence, to whom death would be a merciful release. Can man sit in judgment over life and death? You can't keep a good monster down, so we have another entry in 1945 with House of Dracula. Dracula is alive again, somehow, and comes knocking at the door of another scientist, Dr. Edelman. He tells the doctor he doesn't want to be a vampire anymore, but we know better. The good doctor accepts the challenge, and while he's working that out, Larry Talbot shows up wanting to be cured of his lycanthropy. Apparently, Edelman is the only guy covered on monster insurance. While out one day with the Wolfman, they find Karloff's skeleton and Frankenstein's monster from the last movie. Edelman takes the monster to the lab and sets about his mad science. Dracula taints Edelman's blood because he's Dracula, and Edelman takes on some vampiric traits. But really, it's more a Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing. Edelman gets rid of Dracula by exposing him to sunlight, and that's one monster down. After that, Edelman performs surgery on Larry, and he's cured. Apparently, it was all just brain pressure or something. Two monsters down. Which leaves us with the monster, which Edelman, of course, wants to revive. Before he gets to that, though, Edelman has his own reign of terror as his tainted blood gets the better of him. He eventually revives the monster, and Larry, sensing that Edelman has gone evil, shoots him. Frankenstein's monster runs amok, and everything goes crashing down. All monsters down. That would basically seem to be the end of the universe, but I feel like I need to include Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein from 1948. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but in a half an hour the moon will rise and I'll turn into a wolf. You and 20 million other guys. Listen, I might tear you limb from limb. Is that serious? He'll murder you. That's serious. The titular comics play baggage handlers who receive the bodies of Dracula and the Frankenstein monster, who wake up and start to wreak havoc again. Lon Chaney as Larry Talbot comes along, apparently hunting after the Count and the monster. He is done with their tomfoolery. The previous film's surgery didn't quite stick because Larry Talbot has his moon malady again. There are some good bits where the Wolfman stalks Costello and Costello doesn't notice. Bud and Lou get into the usual comedy hijinks. Lugosi returns to the role of Dracula 17 years after originating it. Dracula has this great idea of putting Costello's brain into the monster's body. These plans do not pan out. He and the Wolfman have a Holmes and Moriarty moment, and the monster gets burned up. Again. It's a ferociously funny flick. One of the greatest horror comedies of all time. There are lots of reasons why these films are important and have endured. The stories are fun and it's neat to see how special effects evolved, especially the werewolf transformations. As I've grown as a horror fan, I've noticed other studios following Universal's lead. Not with cinematic universes really, but using horror films to establish independent studios into the mainstream or to maintain revenue. New Line Cinema, Lionsgate, and A24 would follow in these footsteps. Though I don't think Marvel took much from these films, it's hard not to see the similarities. If you decide to check all these out, I recommend keeping an eye out for Lionel Atwill and Dwight Fry. They show up in multiple entries and never as the same character. Maybe devise a drinking game. With this summer's new mummy flick emerging, we can look forward to newer adventures of our favorite monsters. And with Jordan Peele signing a multi-picture deal with Universal, who knows? Maybe Key and Peele will meet Frankenstein. 
I'm Andrew from DeadLetterMovies.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. The next time that I tell you that I saw something when I saw it, you believe me that I saw it. Oh, relax. Now that we've seen the last of Dracula, the Wolfman and the Monster, there's nobody to frighten us anymore. Oh, that's too bad. I was hoping to get in on the excitement. Who said that? Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the Invisible Man. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha,